Welcome to the ABOP podcast. ABOP is the Alliance of Black Orchestra Percussionists, a nonprofit organization that focuses on mentoring future generations of black percussionists. My name is Raynor Carroll. I am your host and an ABOP founder. Thank you for joining us. This episode features a roundtable discussion with five ABOP founders. Tim Adams, former principal timpanist with the Pittsburgh Symphony. Douglas Cardwell, former principal timpanist with the New Mexico Philharmonic. Michael Crusoe, former principal timpanist with the Seattle Symphony. Josh Jones, former principal percussionist with the Kansas City Philharmonic. And me, Raynor Carroll, former principal percussionist with the Los Angeles Philharmonic. In introducing ABOP's founders, it should be noted that we are all classically trained musicians. We all held principal titles in our respective symphony orchestras. And in case anyone listening does not know this, we are all black. We are rare, a deviation and aberration of the norm in classical music. And although we have somehow been able to rise up, there are very few black musicians in symphony orchestras. So I wonder, how did we manage to achieve our goals? What type of support did we get? What were some of the failures and learning experiences that we have in common? And what can we offer to younger generations that are following a similar path? Josh, I'd like to begin with you. What were the important elements that aided and guided you in reaching your goal? Um, let's see, definitely, I'd say mentorship, accessibility, and a lot of support from family and friends, for sure. I would second that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important that we get the support from our family and we find a mentor that will really help and guide us. And then leadership also, you know, from band directors, your private teacher, whatever. That was very important in my story. Douglas? Same thing. Extreme support, even though that I'm the only musician in my family. I, I never got asked to stop playing drums in the house. <laughs> and that's rare, um, especially with my students. I'll, they'll come in and they'll be playing soft. And I said, you know, you can play in the studio. You can play loud if you, you know, but I, I never, that was the one thing that, that, that never happened. I, I could play, I played all the time. And that support of, not interfering with that. And they probably drove them crazy, but I never knew it. Yeah. And Douglas, for you, I know I've seen photos of Josh when he's, I don't know, one or two years old with sticks. Three. Okay. I'm, I'm pushing a little bit. So, but Douglas, when were you doing this? So my first drumsticks were the clothes hangers, the wooden, the <laughs> that, and then the the cardboard for for pants. That that was my first drumsticks, and I would beat on everything. It was great. I mean, my my folks listened to Motown and had wonderful and extreme excellent rec uh, record collection, and music was always in the house. It wasn't classical music, but that was the music that I was listening to, and for whatever reason, I mean, I just took to that rhythm and, and like fish to water. It was just, it was, it seemed simple. It seemed like part of me and you would just play on anything all the time. It became annoying when I was doing that, when, before I had a drum set, yeah. you know, or a set of drums, 
And then they saw the desire, they saw the love, they saw that this guy's not going to stop beating on stuff. <laughs> and then basically from that went into middle school band. Now, the funny story is I did the test for middle school band, played rhythms, a band director was helping, whatever, played the rhythms. And it was, I was like, okay, what else you got? You know, that's what I'm thinking. It was, again, it was just simple. It was easy. Right. Show up the next week for band class. And the band director says, oh, we're not going to have percussion. Well, I've decided we're not going to have percussion in the beginning band. Because at that time, there was no such thing as bell kits, right? So they wanted everybody to play a lyrical instrument. So I had to choose another instrument. So I chose saxophone. <laughs> and I played saxophone for one week and I quit. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I just didn't like blowing air through a horn. I wanted to play drums. When I quit, my mom who really probably couldn't afford it at the time, got me private drum lessons. And from then it was, that was it. Yeah, she knew, <laughs> she knew it was drums, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause I had already been playing my air drums or whatever drum I could make on anything at the house for three years, if not more, not more than that. Then my second year, I had a, a, a year of private lessons and then went into band the next year because I already knew stuff that the other kids didn't. So I was always, quote unquote, ahead of the other kids in the percussion section because I had private lessons for a year and they've been blowing air through stuff, you know? Right. <laughs> you know right. I was great. I started high school marching band my, in my seventh grade year in high school because it was a small area in that I could read. So they bumped me up. And from there, I was, was always ahead just because I was getting information high school information in middle school. It was great. Right. And Mike, how'd you get started? What were some of the key elements for you? Well, I had an older cousin, my late cousin, Philip, who uh, uh, who played drums and he joined the Drum and Bugle Corps. And where I grew up, the Drum and Bugle Corps, it was kind of like, it was a good outlet to keep kids from getting in trouble kind of thing. You know, kind of like the whole, the whole YMCA, you know, activity, you know. Right. And uh, when he came home, he had this beautiful uniform that, he, I mean, is nicely decorated and stuff and it's made of silk and has stars and all that, you know, and the, the drumsticks. And uh, I was wondering, what is this? You know, well, uh, he says, you know, it's, it's drum corps. I've seen marching bands, but I've never seen drum and bugle corps. And as it turns out, you know, when I look more into it, this was really a big deal in our neighborhood, the particular drum corps that he was part of, you know. So uh, the first time I saw him, it was marching, the drum corps was marching in this annual parade they had in St. Louis. It was kind of like uh, St. Louis's version of the Mardi Gras, if you can, you know, where it was, it was an annual thing and it was sponsored by a local orphanage, uh, the Animal Loan Home. And I saw the way people responded to my cousin Philip. He was like a local celebrity you know, in this drum and bugle course. So I picked up sticks and started mimicking what I saw him do. And that was that was my basic influence, you know. And uh, so the next thing is I wanted to join the drum and bugle corps, the same one that he was in. And they had like a, they had like an A and a B corps where the B corps was like the minor league, the training corps, you know, for the A corps, you know. Right. And uh, so I worked really hard to get to the A corps level where my, where my cousin was. And then once I did, 
I mean, it was just, you know, all kind of doors just opened up as far as uh, what influenced me as a kid, you know, in turn learning what you like to do, uh, you know, the whole communication, you know, with other other kids, you know, the peer thing, you know, it's just, I felt like I really started to grow as a person, you know, through this recreation that we were doing. During the summer, it was particularly busy because we would go to drum and bugle corps contests. Well, that means hopping on the bus, riding over to Illinois. Uh, we rode up to uh, Wisconsin for the, the Slits Parade, you know, the big, really big parade. Uh, we didn't make Vail Profit, I mean, the uh, Rose Bowl or anything like that, but we made some big parades, you know, and, and yeah. big drum and bugle corps contests. I remember my biggest trip as a kid was going to Philadelphia for what's called the VFW Nationals. That's when drum corps from all across the country, you know, that was my initial influence. And, Mike, and then, Mike, can I ask you, how old were you when you started, though, roughly? Uh, it was... Elementary was, school? No, it was, uh, it was junior high. Okay. Yeah, it was around, uh, I mean, the activity I'm talking about now. Now, before that, I picked up, I, I must have been around nine to 10 years old when I first started taking it around, right? Right. And right. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, in sixth grade, just before I, before junior high, it was during the Christmas holidays and we were at, uh, we were out shopping in downtown St. i never forget, it was the coldest, one of the coldest days of the year. It was my mom and I, we were out shopping where we went in this drugstore. It was a famous drugstore called F&W Woolworths or something like that. And we were in that shopping and then I saw this red three-piece drum set sitting up on a platform in the department store. And I was like, wow, you know, I wish I can get a, have a drum set, you know? And I said, mom, can we buy it? You know, she says, no, that's kind of expensive, but we can't do it. Well, what she did after that was she went to my cousin, Philip. And she basically said, Michael saw this drum set that he wanted, should I buy it for him? You know, because I don't want to spend that much money. And then he loses interest in it. And you know, that, that kind of thing. And right. yeah, my cousin said, yeah, get it for him. Cause I think he's gonna, he's gonna stick with it. He's showing a strong interest. I think he's gonna stick with it. And that, I got the drum set, man, I was just, I really took off then, you know. <laughs> As a matter of fact, uh, before I continue, here's a little funny tidbit. In my neighborhood, we had in the, the apartment where we stayed, uh, downstairs, the people who lived before us, they in the basement, they built a little, it was like a little dance stage. And I set my drum set up. And my brother, uh, who used to like to deal with wiring, he ran wires from downstairs, upstairs to this big high fidelity stereo that we had. And I had all these Motown records that I would put on and then I run downstairs in time for the music to start <laughs> and play and start banging on the drum set, right? But I mean, this, because I started out just as, yeah. Well, it got to a point where a, some of the neighborhood kids and the local winos, they sit there on the corner <laughs> and listen to little Mike jamming, you know, to all the, it was like they, I mean, really, you know, if you went outside, you saw them sitting there, they had, you know, uh, polo sausage sandwiches and beer and hamburger. And everybody sitting out there gathering, talking to chat, you know, it's like I was their entertainment. You know, I just I just happened to discover it one night when I went out to take a break. And then one night there was a knock at the downstairs door. And I went and I answered the door. And this guy said, Hi, uh, can I speak with you a minute? He was nicely dressed. And then he said, I have the singing group and we're looking for a drummer. 
And I'd like to know if you you're interested. He had me a business card. And I'm like, oh wow, I'm gonna be on the Ed Sullivan show, you know, because <laughs> right around that time the Beatles was, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I hit it big, you know, and I went running to my uh, to my mom and showed her the card. And uh and my grandfather, who happened to be there, he and my grandmother, I mean, they were big influences. He I'm going on and on about this. And my granddad is he's sitting there shaking his head. <laughs> He said, no, son, boy, you're going to school. You're not going to, you're not going to go. Well, long story, long story short, there was a local joint that, that these guys played in that I was too young to go in anyway, you know, because it was like a nightclub, you know, clubbing. And, and, and so, you know, I was too young to do it anyway, but it's just that I thought I was going to be famous and I thought they would deny me the chance to be famous. And I was potting about that, but <laughs> I went on again. <laughs> And kept playing anyway. Well, brother, you went on. You went on to be the people's timpanist. So yeah, well, that was that was that was that that was for yeah. But the other (laughs) thing that I liked about it was that you know being a drummer, and I I know this might be not the right influence, but I just noticed the girls start noticing you know in in the in the neighborhood. Yeah, and so all of a sudden I'm like fancying myself as a young player, right? Now, let, well, let me be clear, though. See, when I say player, I'm not talking about that Denzel, Tim Adams level of player. I was I was down here. I was something like a player, you know. <laughs> yeah, I was down But anyway, all this attention and so forth, it really motivated me to do it. Where finally my cousin said, you get to high school, you need to join the band. I'm like, that was square, right? I'm in drum corps. Right. You know, he right. said, me join the high school band. I, you know, you can't but he kept after me, kept after me. And so I finally joined and things really took off from there. And that's when I first started taking around with timpani and playing, you know, I was just fascinated by a drum with musical pitch, you know, and I just, and I used to see, they would pull out a clarinet player, you know, a flute player to come over and play the timpani on the xylophone. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I, you know, it's some they ain't gonna call me to go over to play flute, you know, so. Right, right. <laughs> Something ain't right, you know. So, right. <laughs> so I, I just made it a point to start growing more musically and to become more diverse. So, in a nutshell, that was my initial influence. I right. See. And then when I went to college, I decided I was going to teach music because I didn't think I would make it as a play. I didn't see myself as a player or as mm-hmm. a performer. But what happened was I, I still played with local ensembles, you know, like wind ensemble, community orchestra. And people would always come up to me afterwards and say, hey, you know, you're really good. Have you thought about playing? I said, well, no, I'm going to teach. I don't, I don't I don't, see myself as a performer. Well, to conclude this, uh, I, I won a timpani job with the St. Louis Philharmonic, which was like a big civic orchestra. I'm on my way to, to rehearsal, and there's a recording of New England Triptych playing on the radio, right? And I'm listening to this, and I'm really getting into this timpani player who's playing the recording. And I'm like going, wow, you know, that... And by the time I pulled up the rehearsal, I'm starting to run late, but I'm so captivated by this recording and the playing that I'm hearing, you know, I wanted to hear throughout to the end. So I took a chance on getting up late to the rehearsal. When it got to the end, the radio host said, you've been listening to a a live performance of the St. Louis Symphony Youth Orchestra, you know, conducted by Gerhard Zimmer. Well, that turned out I was the guy on the recording and didn't know it. (laughs) <laughs> because what it, the, the situation was 
the youth orchestra had went on a European tour. And when they got back to St. Louis, the timpanist then, he was a friend of mine named Stan Ragsdale, he had to take off for some type of family emergency in California. So they're scrambling. They said, well, who can we get to play timpani? You know, and then we're not having any rehearsal or anything. And uh, I forget who it was, but somebody said, well, this guy Crusoe I heard in the Philharmonic is pretty good. Says there's someone who could come in and play. It's probably him. You should give him a call. So Edith Holden, who was the person that managed, gave me a call. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll come do it. So I went in and played the concert, the performance, because there was no rehearsal. I mean, there was a sound check and all that, but there was no real rehearsal. And I went in and played. Well, for me, that sealed it mm. as far as switching from one to be a teacher to be a full-time performer. Because I kept, had I known it was me I was listening to, I would have been real critical. I can't do it. I should have did it, you know, but I didn't, you know. So I'm listening to this, I'm and so now I'm seeing what other people were telling me, and I thought, okay, I need to give this a crack. I took uh, two auditions. One was at the time the Kansas City Philharmonic, and then the second one was Seattle, which I did not want to go to, but Charlotte said, I think you should go, you know, at least just do it. If you don't, you never know. And you know, you might regret not going. Well, I did. I, I decided to go and then the rest of history. Right. So that's my whole chronological story. It started with my cousin, Philip, and then with my band director, Mr. Overby. And then from there, I went on to college and studied with the guys in the St. Louis Symphony. And that set me on course for, for, for doing it. And yeah. Yeah. So again, that whole thing just reminded me, and that's, you know, when it comes to mentorship, you know, sometimes the kid needs that brought out of him. You know, you, they can have a negative view of themselves, you know, that holds them back. And it can take someone on the outside, you know, looking in to see what it is that you don't see, you know, and that's an important role I see where mentorship is going. And that's why, too, you know, I came to realize that in order for real learning to take place, if you're going to teach someone, they got to see a relationship between what it is you're trying to teach them between themselves to what it is that you're trying to teach them. And I felt like I got all that, you know, over a period of time that helped me become the person, you know, as well as player that I am. You know, it was right. really, I really feel fortunate. Yeah. And that's why I enjoy teaching and why I want to be a part of this, you know, and be a mentor to someone else who could hopefully, you know, reach their dreams the way that I ultimately did. Absolutely. You know, one thing that we have in common so far, everyone has said, we'll get to Tim in a second, that growing up in the household, there was music. Douglas, you said there was music there, Mike and Josh. For me, it's the same thing. I got all styles of music. It was a part of life. And I think for all of us, we we stuck to drums for whatever reason. Uh So now we want to hear from Tim. And specifically, Tim, the question is, what were the important elements that aided and guided you in reaching your goal? I'll try to make this quick. My first concert that I went to, I was five months old. So I was born on August 22nd and went to my first concert sometime in December because my dad was a band director. So I went to concerts from five months until I was seven a spring and a and a christmas concert so i just went so that's just that was my indoctrination into music and then my dad was a band director 
And that was back in the day when the bander, when the bander wore that uniform with the hat and the whole deal. It was old school. So my, you know, my dad was that guy. I used to hold his hands that because I wanted to walk with him in the parade. <laughs> so, you know, my dad, my dad was like, no sense. I want to walk. And so I would, and so I did that for a number of years. And I found that when they would have band rehearsal and the drum line would be practicing, I would go and get underneath the snare drum. I'm like underneath the snares. Because <laughs> I, mean, I wasn't, wow. you know, I mean, I would just be up in there. I'm like, and so my dad would be like, where's Tim? And he'd go outside and I'd be standing just like this. And I said, dad, I want to play drums. He goes, maybe son, maybe she play oboe or bassoon. That way you'll get a job. They always need one of those. <laughs> I, go, I said, no, I want to play drums. Are you sure now? I think oboe, bassoon would be very good. I went, no, I want to play drums. So I studied with him for a year. And then my, when I was eight, I studied with a student teacher of his, Clarence Daniels. And I remember Clarence Daniels because he had a real pretty left hand. He played traditional grip. I can see his hand now. I can see that brown hand around that stick. I can, I can see it. And I, I would just stare at his left hand. And my dad got me a Frank Arsenal record. Yeah. And Frank Arsenal, you know. So I listened to Frank Arsenal every night before I went to bed. I went to sleep listening to Rudiments. But, you know, my dad was a band director, so he, would, he was very, he was a quintessential pedagogue. He, he, he loved music. He loved the art of it. So he was in the very first Midwest. Nellie Bell was his theory teacher. Haskell Hall was his music. He was his percussion methods teacher. Alfred Reed was his arranging teacher. And, you know, that's what that was. So that's the kind of indoctrination. He'd bring me articles and I was reading stuff all the time. And so when I was nine, my dad found me a drum teacher who was Bill Wilder, who's just now retired from the Atlanta Symphony after 54 years. So I studied with Bill when I was nine and Bill was 24. That was his first job, and I was his one of his first students. And so then my dad got me that teacher. I studied with Bill from the time I was nine till I was 17. So I was blessed, man. You know, I, I got the right information. Right. You know, my mother was a, was a principal. So I, you know, <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, I mean, it's like, go practice, okay. I mean, I, they were very disciplined with me, with my practice and my schoolwork, and, and, and my dad, he was always striving to improve his students and himself. To give an example, he thought his flutes were weak. So he started taking lessons from the principal flute player in Atlanta Symphony because his flutes were weak. Like nobody does that now, even, you know, so he lit, so he and I would go to lessons together. So he'd go to his flute lesson and I'd go to my drum lesson. And then we have to come home and report to my mother. So we drive home from Atlanta. How's your lesson, son? said, man, it wasn't good. He said, man, it wasn't either. So we get home and my mother would say, okay, how was it? And we tell her, she said, you go practice, you go practice. So she would send us both to the, to the room <laughs> to practice. It happened every Tuesday. And so it was always, um, it was such an integral part of my life. And Bill taught me the love of drums. He just taught me to love it because he loved it. He still loves, he just loves percussion. He loves it. And I think that's the thing that he taught me most. And he taught me all the instruments. He taught me everything, every instrument. And then when Paul got the job, my junior year of high school, Warren Little, who my dad was studying with, he says, Tim, you should have Tim take a lesson from the new timpanist. And my dad said, why? He says, because he sounds like a string bass when he plays. I'm like, okay. And so I started studying with, with Paul when I was a junior in high school. And let me go back 
I played in the very first youth orchestra in Atlanta. I was 13 in every in all the percussionists from Georgia State. So I was very fortunate that most of the youth orchestra were college students and I was a kid. And my first concert, I played snare drum on an outdoor overture and timpani on Pines of Rome. I remember that. And the older guys were like, you know, Tim, you're kind of young. You should really let us play it. And I, I thought, okay, maybe so. So I went out and I remember I told my mother, I said, mom, you know, the older guys, my mom, she said, no, you got the part, you play it. Like, okay, so so she's she's the person that made me have no fear in that space. And so I was fortunate because like it was a really good band. So I did my first indoctrination to orchestra music, it wasn't sad, like people could play. Like outdoor overture sounded like outdoor overture, Pines Rome sounded like Pines Rome, because all the kids were studying with people in the Atlanta Symphony. And I was I was young. And so it just I just liked the sound of it. It wasn't like that was more hip than Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Parliament, and Confunction, and Emotions, and Gospel music. It's just, it just, there's nothing that sounded like that. It just, even now, just nothing sounds like that orchestra. And so we would have these, we would have these master classes, and Jack Bell, who was principal, he was in his tambourine class, and I'll never forget it. First of all, this, this long-haired guy that looked homeless came walking through the class and Paul and Jack said, this is Paul Yonchis, our new tempest. I'm like, what did he get him for? They let him on the street. Damn, look at him. He looked crazy. But Jack says, Paul, show us how you play tambourine. And he got the tambourine like that. I'm like, it was like, it was unbelievable. And so he walked away. He was like, you know, he's like Batman that just walked away. He because he came in, he was tucking timpani hair. So he had this hair that was brown. I thought, what he got that from the trash can? I'm like, what the, what is this thing? And so he, he was tucking his, and he, he shook that tambourine. It was like I was in a movie. And then in the middle of the class, I raised my hand. I said, Mr. Bell. He goes, yes, Tim. I said, do you play in the Atlanta Symphony for a living? He goes, yeah. I went, mm, okay. About 10 more minutes, he's talking about something. Tim Grant raised my hand. He says, yes, Tim. I said, so you don't have to teach. You, you're not a band director. You don't conduct the chorus or orchestra. They pay you to play in the orchestra. He goes, yes, Tim. About 15 minutes later, he's talking about some different things. I said, Mr. Mr. Bell, I just want to make sure I understood. They pay you <laughs> to, to play in the orchestra. Like, that's your living. He said, yes, Tim. I went, okay. So I went home that night at dinner. I said, I want to play in a major orchestra when I grew up. I was 13. That was it. So my reason to play in an orchestra was strictly money. No, I'm kidding. It was. I'm going to say that had to be a real disappointment, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. Look, remember, that's why I quit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> so, but the idea that they could pay me to play percussion was just, I couldn't believe it. And so that's when I made the decision when I was 13. And then, you know, I studied with Paul when I was a junior and then he would leave his drums on stage with calf heads. He'd go, and I, I come to rehearsal, I'm like, what are these things doing here? The stage guys would say, Paul left them on stage for you. I said, for what? He says to play, I'm like, I'm not playing these drums. <clears throat> so I, I would just sit, I would just, I would just sit in there, people warming up, I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And then Paul walks out. And he goes, how you doing? I'm like, uh, I'm good, man. Why are these here? You can play them. I'm like, are you sure? Just don't break the heads. Then he walks away. You know, so so he would let me play his drums. 
And so I had a real, he gave me a love for that instrument. And then when I was 17, I started playing extra in the orchestra in Atlanta Symphony. And my first concert was Mahler 5 up at Woodlock at Tam Tam. And the first rehearsal, I, I, list, I, I listened to Mahler 5 every night, seven days a week, all of it for a month before I went to my first rehearsal. So I was basically playing from memory. I didn't need any music. And, you know, dig it about, dig it about. And then Paul played that first G sharp. He's right over there. And I went, he went, dig it a dean, dig it a dean, dig it a dean. And I was like, oh, I wasn't using profanity then. So it was more like, wow. And so I looked at it and I went, okay. Then he played the solo, that C sharp and E thing. And then again, I looked over and I, I never heard anything that sounded so, it was like more, it was like human. It, it wasn't, it, it, it touched something in me, just the, the way he played. But right as the, as the strings come in, just that, those three E's, I'm like, okay, check. And then the, the next part, the third movement. I'm like, oh, shit, okay. And then this is, this is what happened in the concert. And then, you know, beam, ba 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 B flat, that note. And it was something where he hit that note and it went boom, boom, boom. And I thought, okay, where did you go to school? Because we never really talked about that. I was just taking lessons and I could never please him. I was always frustrated. I didn't like it. My dad loved I was frustrated all the time. And he said, he said, I went to Cleveland. I said, okay, who did you study with? He said, Chloe Duff. Then I started temporary with Richard Wiener. I'm a percussion with Richard Wiener. I'm like, all right. Then I played again, and they did Don Juan. Then G. And I'm like, okay. So I went home that night, and I said, I want to go to Cleveland. My parents said, why? I said, I don't want to sound like him. That's it. And 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 Bill wanted, Bill had me auditioning for IU because I love to play in marching band and jazz band and concert band and orchestra. So IU was perfect. So I got it. So I auditioned IU. I got a full scholarship, everything free. I got a CIM, didn't get a dime, zero. And I went there. And the best money my, my, my parents ever spent. You know, so that, that was my, that was how I got into orchestra playing. And it was all just a feeling. But it's something about that oral. It gave me like this, this feeling inside that's unexplainable when you're on the stage with 100 people. And it became like intoxicating. It's like you, you had to have that all the time. Yeah. It was a very, it's a very, you know, unless you do it, you can't really get it. And you can't get it from the audience. You got to be on the stage. You got to have it swirling around you. Even if it sounds sad, it's still great. You know, <laughs> so when I, when I went to school and I, when I auditioned at CIM, on the end of the orchestra, they're playing this Dell Tragedy piece called Final Alice. Two timpani players, each one of them had like 13 drums. Duff had 13, Bob Massonet had 13. And I walk in, I'm like, and my mother and I went to the concert. And she said, baby, what do you think? I went, I want to go here. This is where I want to go. This is it. And I got in. And then from there, it was probably one of the most illuminating times of my life. I think the, the second or third month there, I played with John Cage. We did this piece with, with Cage coaching and the piece was three and a half hours long, just the piece, just three and a half hours. I loved it. Surrealism, it just hit the States and Europe. I mean, so everything about the experience of playing in the orchestra and going to school, when I went to school in Cleveland, it just hit all my senses 
and it just turned like the lights on. And it was because of the level of play and everybody around me had a love for the level of play. And at the time, I don't, I'm not sure if it's like that now, but when I was there, everybody taught you. And, you know, they all knew your name. Like John Matt would go, TK, how's it going? I said, good. I said, are you practicing, young man? I said, yes, sir, I'm practicing. Good, go practice. I have so many stories about how all of these musicians from the Cleveland Orchestra were always very encouraging to all of us, but they were very encouraging to me. And that gave me the confidence that I could play anywhere and I could do anything. All of my teachers took interest not only in how I was sounding, but how I was doing. They were so concerned about my humanity and how my parents were doing, and they had a vested interest in Tim. So I listened to them. And they never gave me the wrong information ever. I was I was very, very lucky because they gave me the information without an ego. And, and I watched them go to work week after week after week after week after week. And the level of play is a kind of thing that you want to exemplify as a human. Because not only did they play well, they acted the same way in their families. I saw that. I saw how they treated their wives and their kids. And then I saw how they went to work. And so I, I wanted to mimic that, just there. Under, then I started to understand why they played the way they played. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was strictly for, because they didn't write books. They didn't put, they didn't do sticks, they didn't do anything. It, it, it was very utilitarian for them. They went to work, then they went home. Like the job was the job. That's it. It wasn't like a, it was very interesting because it, it wasn't like a lot of their peers that spent a lot of time boasting or it's not the writing books and stuff is bad. It's just their relationship to the job was, it was just the job. And I remember vividly after a concert, I played Mr. Duff. He came to the concert, he goes, yeah, hey, very good. I said, thank you. And he saw me, I looked at someone and they were saying something to me and he goes, ah, he says, uh, listen, uh, Tim, when you, after the concert, you close your sticks, your bag, you go home. You don't wait for accolades. Your job is to be good. You only want respect for yourself and for your colleagues. Do you understand me? Yes, young man. I mean, yes, sir, I understand. Those are the kind of things that I, I was given all the time that, 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 that wired me in a way that made me respect what I was doing. And Duff would always say to me, he says, remember, whenever dialing in, there's somebody come to the concert for the first time that has never heard that piece. Do you understand what I'm saying? Said, yeah, man I, man, I hear you. I understand. And the same with Rich. He, between you, he had the same kind of passion and, and man, he, man, he would lose his SHIT in rehearsal, man. I bet. He was so wired. I mean, he would throw chairs. I loved him. He was like, that's why he played the way he played. And I never, never really understood until he passed and I was at his funeral and, his, and the rabbi said, he said, Rich, why do you care so much about the way you played the triangle? Because everybody in the orchestra would say, nobody played triangle like Richard Wayne, like the violinist would say something. And Rich said, and, I, and we didn't know this, he said, every percussionist man has a soul. It's my job to get it out. And I'm like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. And Yantich said, he, Ronnie said, damn, Rich is teaching us from the grave. And everybody's like laughing. <laughs> and so it, it really made me understand what I've been looking at for 35 years. It was, 
his relationship to what his responsibility was, not only to the instrument, to the ensemble and where he fit. It was never about him. It's about the aesthetic of the art. Right. You know, right. And, and and I felt really blessed that that's where I came from. Right, right. You know? And that, that leads me to ask, because, you know, we are all different. We all have different things inside of us, different experiences, but we've all gotten to this level. So how did we, how do we all take these things? Because you can get someone that has the same training, that has the same teachers, that has the same more or less experience, but they don't, they don't succeed in getting to where we've gotten. So what is it in each of us? Tim, for you, that got you there, that you took from your parents, from uh, Paul, from Richard, you know, et cetera. What, what is it that we took individually and we were able to get to that level? My answer is very simple, being Black, period. Because my, my, my dad's 87, my mom's 85. I grew up in the South. I was born in the segregation and raised in forced integration. You're told certain things that in, that arm you and inform you how to not only how to survive but how to thrive in the world, being a black person. And the thing that resonated has resonated for me, and they said it to me in such a way is so beautiful, man. I'm not gonna cry, but but the the way they said it to me, you know, they got down low and they looked at me, but they said it in a way that would, had no malice. He said, "Listen, son, you have to be." a thousand times better because you're black. And that's okay because you will be good. Would you like some beans now? Yes, ma'am, I would like some beans, thank you. You know, and 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 Raynard, that's the only answer I can give is because it was, it was never a hindrance to me, ever. I mean, I practiced at the time more than my my, my classmates. Nobody yeah. outpracticed me, Yeah. period. It, right. now, it doesn't mean you win, but I understood what was required for me to be seen as a musician. Right. I'm going to be black. I just show up. Black guy walked in the room. I'm sorry. Somebody said the colorblind and full of that's not That's not possible. Right. So I, I know when I walk in, there's a certain thing that goes that starts to compute. If the space does not look like me, and it doesn't mean that a person's racist. It's just that we live in a world where that's a whole conversation. So I knew that. So all I knew is, Okay, so I will practice more than everybody else. And the most important thing is, Richard Wiener told me I will get a job. Cloyd Dove told me you will get a job. Paul Yonke said you will get a job. So my thing is, they said I would, then I will get a job. Then all I have to do is practice to get a job. So they, so, be they believed in you, they gave you that support, and you took it to the next level. You didn't slough off. You practice more than your peers. So there's two things right there, getting that support that, and, 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 that, and, that comes from someone at that, a higher level, you know, that telling you, you it, can do it, this, you know. It also, it, it came mainly from my parents though. Right, right. It right. came, it, 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 all of it came from them. I yeah. mean, yeah. It, 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 the, the, the work ethic came from me looking at these old people that always had their face in a book. Right. You know, all the people in my church, they work hard. These people work hard. Right. They have degrees or not, they work. So all I saw was black people moving, working hard, being attentive, being intelligent, being spiritual, being all. And so then you get validation, like you said, from the people that are doing it. That's what I have to say. I say, go ahead, uh, Doug. 
oh yeah, this is the exact same thing. You that that support has to come from someone, and from the from the people that we're teaching and mentoring, let them know it it may or may not come from a family member, but that support's going to come from someone, and it will come from us because we've experienced it. Number one, and because we are Black Americans, yeah, you you have to be better. You have you know that you have to be better as as soon as you start or as soon as you get quote unquote serious or whenever that when that time came. And the third thing, same thing, just like with Tim, when I started, when I had the fellowship with uh, Detroit Symphony, I got up there, I think I was 26 years old. Well, the section had been playing together for 28 years. So, you know, I, I shut up and I listen and you just listen and you just listen and you watch. Now I had the luxury that um, Saul Rabito uh, Salvatore Rabio, I was in this carpool. So I was in the carpool at 26 with the principal Tempinus and principal Horn and how they carried themselves. And then after they start to believe in you and, and oh, you can play you. And they told me you will get a job and they actually can see and they believe in you. These are the real people who how they carry themselves that make a difference in our lives. And yeah, these guys are white, of course. Yeah. And but the, we know that we have to carry ourselves a certain way. But when they instill in you that, dude, you can play and you just keep doing what you're doing and you'll get a job, but it takes, you gotta practice. So why, why did we practice? Others practice too, other black percussionists practice, but I think I know the answer, but I want you guys to tell me, why did we not stop? Why did we just keep on playing? Or I should say, Josh, why didn't you stop practicing after an hour or two? You know, what what kept you going? Honestly, I was just really curious. Like, I, it, it's weird because I can still remember, like, I just love the way things felt. Like, I can remember going into jewelry stores and wanting to play with the beads and, like, hearing how this type of plastic bead sounded like this and this type of bigger bead sounded like this. Like, I was always curious about percussion sounds and why did certain wood feel a certain way and why did this grain have this really weird thing like I was just always curious so when they said oh you have to practice 45 minutes a day and my dad's like well you have to be twice as good well I was really into math at that time and I was like well if I do some multiplying I could probably practice four to eight times more than everybody else and I'll just do that from now on. And, and I was always, I was a very, oh, I still am a very dutiful son. So if someone told me to do something, I would just say, okay, no matter how I felt, <laughs> like <laughs> they say, go wash the dishes, you go wash the dishes. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I have to practice eight hours a day. No, not eight hours a day, eight times more <laughs> than everybody else. Like I just said yes to everything. I'm, I'm also really into movies. Like I loved movies oh. growing up. Um, and one of my favorite movies to this day is Rocky three. And there's a scene which, where I think Mickey is like, if you fall down and you feel like you can't get up, you just, Mickey's going to say in your ear, get up, you son of a bitch. <laughs> like, and like, for some reason, that whole movie really moved me in a way of like, if ever I felt like I couldn't do anything more, like just find some sort of energy to go do it. Like, you know? So I, I don't know why I've had that type of, I guess they call it grit now, 
but really it was just me being curious and just seeing, like I could see and feel the results of the practicing. So I was like, oh, if I do this kind of thing, I'll get better. And I cannot have to do all the other things that didn't work out. Like, why didn't those work out? I wonder why. And then I work on like, why did this particular thing work? And why did this work? And why doesn't this book have these exercises? <laughs> like, I don't know. I just was super curious. I, I think it boils down to spending time with your instrument. And when you're in that room and you're bonding with your instrument, time means nothing. You know, I, I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but I remember distinctly experiencing this at Cal State LA, practicing the timpani one evening late. I didn't know what time it was, but all of a sudden, it's like everything was working. From that point on, it's like, okay, I had the spin X a number hours, but I think the X is important. It's different for everybody. You know, there is a 10,000 theory, 10,000 hours of bouncing a basketball or shooting hoops, 10,000, whatever. But it, I think it's different for each person. And I think in part, you have to get to that point where you spent those hours, whether it was the timpani, whether it's with the marimba, snare drum, where you've, you know that instrument and the instrument knows you and you know what to do and you know what it's going to take to play that part. You guys experience that too? Yeah, I mean, I, I know from... Oh, go ahead, Josh. I was going to say the mothers call that uh, tarrying or something like that. Yeah, so that's, that's where I learned it from. But you know, for, for me, and I'm still this way now if I had the time, I, I just love the way the instruments sound. Yeah, just I, I just I just I could go downstairs and pull out a suspended cymbal and play that thing for three or four hours. Uh, first, I look at it for thirty minutes. And go, this is a bad one. Look at this. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, only we could do. I mean, or, or look at a triangle and hit it and go, man, come on. And I just ding, ding all day, and I'm comfortable dinging. Oh, I, I'm not kidding. I, I'm not. I wish I. I mean. Oh, I, anything i don't have to hit it a lot just hit it and i just like you said Raynor, it's, it's the relationship to it and the more i practice the more i sound like rich and the more i practice the more i sound like paul or duff and then i started to sound like it would sound like me right so so i i had a goal and then i'm like yeah but i like this is listen to this oh my god i can hear it Wow, and then you just keep playing. You just like love. Yeah. Yeah. And you can hear that like like yeah. the first time I heard Mike play. I mean, I was pissed off because it made sounds so good. I'm mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you, you accept that. <laughs> but, but, but you can tell when people like when people like love what they do. It has right. a sound too. Right, right. Everybody else here, I've heard like I heard Doug play and Josh and, and I, it was on video and, and recordings, but that's the thing that always always attracts me to players is whether they love to play it. Right. It, that has a sound to it. There are a lot of people in orchestras that sound great. They don't really love it. So I don't like the way it sounds, right. even though it's good. You can tell. It, it, you can yeah, tell. <laughs> so the reason I like being with you guys is that you're just as crazy as I am. You love it like I do. Well, since we're, since we're yeah, confessing I mean, I, I now, just... <laughs> let, 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 me, let me give a confession. I'll be a second here. For me, I love going up to the bass drum. It's on its suspended stand with a medium to soft mallet and just hitting it mezzo piano, mezzo forte. 
and just feeling that deep vibration from within go out. Nothing meets that. I mean, I love all my instruments, but nothing meets a whole note on the bass drum, mezzo piano at quarter note 60 or whatever, you know, nice, full, deep sound. I, I, I'm addicted. That's, that's what I miss playing those bass drum parts. <laughs> if somebody heard this, we sound like we're out of our mind. Well, we are. That's we're, we're, great. We, we, we yeah. are not normal. And that's the point. That's you know, great. we did, that. we did something. We bonded with these instruments in a way that's that right. I think it takes to yeah. get to that level. That's you right. need to put in that time. You need to get there in order to to be stuck on that instrument. You can't pull us away from it. You know, I've no, been retired no. many years now, but I'm still I still love playing the drums. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'll, I'll never forget. I was in a pit, and Mike was playing Wagner, and man, that shit sounded so good. And I was close to him too. You know, some people don't sound like that close. <laughs> you don't need, don't need to be. <laughs> I was right next to her. I'm like, this mug sounds so good and close. I'm not even mad at it. It was just so beautiful just to just be around well, somebody well, that loved it like me, you know? Yeah, yeah. When, when Pittsburgh came through town, me and some of my colleagues, and I was out sitting in the audience high-fiving each other doing a sound check. <laughs> when you, you were playing Sibelius, you know, we were like, oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, mean, you I was like, it. see? <laughs> Man, thank you. I, I, it, but but I, I'm I'm saying that because it's like for the love of the of the music and the instrument. It's like no ego. It's just the love. I mean, you know, I'll never forget when Rainer and uh, Bob White came to my concert. I mean, I don't forget that. I mean, you could have gone somewhere else. You could have been having a nice meal, listening to Marlon Five. What's wrong with you? <laughs> but, but 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 that that it, it still means a lot to me now because of the gesture. And that kind of respect for the music, and man, you have to tell people you appreciate them, and that's the that's the thing that I think can be the most important thing that we can do in ABOP is to teach people to show appreciation for each other, and to tell each other, man, you sound good, and I love you, sound man. This what you're doing out here is, is important, and it's important that we all do this together. And for me, Reno, when you taught me about doing ABOP, that's the only thing I thought to try to teach, no, to share the love for the music that I have with them. Bill Wilder said that to me a month ago. He says the, the best, biggest blessing for me is that I've been able to teach something I love and to try to teach the students to love it like I do. Right. And that's how, you know, and it sounds like about love and it's how I'm powerful. I mean, I'm trying to be mad all the time to try to keep calming down, but, but it's really the love of, of the music and our instrument, man, it's such a beautiful thing. I kind of go off, sorry. No, I mean, that. I think that's what we're saying is that when we teach and we find a student that soaks it up, you see that they share the passion that we have. It's a, it's a unique bonding that, you yeah. know, let, let's be honest, a very small percentage of students that I've taught have felt that way. Because you can see it. You can see it maybe in the first lesson or you can see how they progress. They're, they're mm -hmm. probably not going to go there for whatever reason, but the ones that do, it's like, wow, wow. Let me, don't wait another week, come back. Let's do another lesson because right. I'm benefiting as much out of this, if That's not right. more than you are. Yes. You know? yes. 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 I had one today. You just, you just don't want to stop playing. That's why you're beaming tonight, Douglas. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. stop playing. Yeah. Love teaching the kid. Yeah. It's the loop. It's a loop of energy. 
Yeah. I mean, that that's what we want to do. We want to share our passion of what we've come to love and respect. We, we want to encourage that with others. And obviously there is a lack of us on stage. So it's even extra special when we see that in a young person that is of color and you can see the fire, you can see they want to learn. Well, we want to teach, we want to be with you. We want to be your mentor, you know. And it's, it's really an extension of you too, you know, if you, if you think about it, you know, if you, of course. you got a student that goes on to make their mark, you know, you, in my eyes, they've carried on another step, all right? It's like you taking another step beyond what you yourself took, you know? Right. And, sort of, yeah. right. and uh, I, I really believe in that philosophy about uh, learn to teach, teach to learn, because it's, right. it, uh, you know, it benefits everybody. Absolutely. Right? That's why I enjoy doing it. I think a strong point along with that is that we are not teaching students to be us, to be clones of us. Right. This is this is what I learned from my my teacher Mitchell Peters is that he would always tell me always there's many ways to do it. There is mm -hmm. no right way. You know, you have a conductor that says he wants it this way, you have to do it that way. Right. But yes. in, in general there are many ways to do things and you he doesn't want me to do it exactly how he did it. He'll teach me, he'll teach me an alternative and he'll say go work on it and you see what you like and you present yourself. In part, when I'm doing lessons, I don't like to play a lot because I find some students just mimic everything I do. And that, that's not learning. That's like, you know, when you're cramming to do a test the next day, you're trying to just take it all in. It doesn't work that way. I remember when I was studying, the first community orchestra I played with, I was playing extra. I think I was playing, uh, play cymbals and tambourines. Some. The guy who was playing timpani, he was doing all these pompous gestures, trying to imitate Rick Holmes. I mean, it, I mean, he had to, you know, Rick had the long hairdo back then, kind of like the Beatles, the Beatles cut, you know, where this guy came in, he had the same, the same cut, you know, and he's doing all this weird stuff. And I mean, there's no music <laughs> coming out of the drums. You know, it was just gestures, you know, all these uh, weird, weird. And he looked around to see who was looking at him. And I, I just, I, I didn't go back. I, I just told him I, I couldn't I couldn't play because it was distracting. It was like really, really distracting. Right, right. But anyway, what you described too, Reno, I mean if you think about it, that's that's like being a parent to me. I mean, it's you know, you you teach your kids, you want to see them go on and be a success, you know, not necessarily your clone. Right. But you know, to, to find their own way. But you know that you were a part of that. You know, that's that's what I mean about uh it's an extension of you in in way. You know, Raina, you talk about uh, Mitch Peters. I studied with Mr. Duff for two years before he retired. He played for me twice in two years. Oh, wow! That's it. And yeah. and, and and he yeah. and he sat with the, his book and a baton, and he just conducted me. And 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 that's what he did for two years. And he only played twice when I just couldn't get the sound he wanted. <laughs> so he goes, ah, "Come here!" Okay. And he hit that drum, and I was like, "Oh shh." And I, I, he said, "Ask big." I went, "Is that what you do on the stage?" He went, "Ah." I went, "Okay." And I saw, I thought, note, I thought, note to self. So that's really what it takes to move that sound to me. That sounds appropriate. It's so up. Uh, it's so effing loud. But it was enormous. I was like, I said, "Is that what you're doing?" He went, yep. Now, whereas Rich Weiner, he played all the time in my lessons on the practice pad, and I. 
constantly. And I thought he's really trying to warm up. I'm like, now I understood he had, he had two kids. He was a lawyer. He had no time to practice. <laughs> so he just drummed all the time. And but plus he was wired. Like he had a Diet Coke and a Snicker bar before a concert. Who does that? <laughs> wow. and, 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 and then he played Bolero. You know, I, I mean, but he was wired like that because I, because I said, Mr. Serena, why'd you become a lawyer? He goes, I was bored. I mean, who's yeah. bored being a principal percussion? But that was his wiring, and so his teaching was always about he was he would he would play the rhythms for me, and then Mr. Duff would talk to me, and Paul was kind of in between, and then my teacher Bill Wilder was really adamant about rhythm and how to play rhythm, where you play rhythm, what parts of the beat and end, and then I end up being the teacher of all, a combination of all of them. Yeah. And which ends up, which I ne I've never had to think for myself, which is good. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I let just, me let me add on to that, Tim, and to make this point that, you know, you had three different styles of teachers as in hands on to the opposite oh, yeah. of never playing. To me, it's very critical, the pairing up of the student with the teacher, because in some instances, it's going to work in other instances it's not so it's really it's hard to figure it out before it's not till you actually get in that room together where you start to see how the sparks fly or they don't or the connection is where you don't have to finish a sentence the student can finish etc etc so that's a really important thing that i learned i had that connection with mitchell peters it was just from the beginning we understood each other he knew what i need he knew what when I needed to be pushed, he knew when I did, when he didn't have to, he was encouraging, and yet he was firm, you know, et cetera. And so what I'm saying is that's such a critical thing in our development. And I think it's probably been the same for everyone. That was the same for me with Sal Rabio. Um, didn't play that much, but knew how to figure out how you think and, and cater to how you think and how you learn. Right. Tons of open-ended questions, rarely any closed yes, no, you know, type of questions. Just if, and then he'll ask you a question and you just sit there and it's almost like you got to come up with an answer eventually, but he, he just got you to think, never would give you an answer. It was beautiful. I mean, it felt like a lot of work then, but, you know, it's very appreciative now, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, isn't that what we're doing? We, I think, are giving the tools to the students so that when we're done, they can make the decisions on stage. They can think back with their experiences with us. Okay, when I was with such and such and we're, he told me why he had me do it this way and what the alternatives were. So now I can make a decision that, you know, I'm not looking over my shoulder. He's not here anymore. And, you know, I've learned through those years of study how to approach this isn't that what we're what we're trying to do because you know we're not going to be we're only with the student at the most one hour a week you know that's right, that's right. the student is practicing you know again as just 20 24 hours <laughs> during that week we're not with them we have just that one hour to convey what we need to convey and they need to get out of us what what they can the rest of the time they're on their own you know i think what's beautiful about all of us is we have a lot of information, which is fortunate for the students, a lot of detailed information that's just not, quote, pedagogical, right? There's that kind of teaching, too, that's 
and we're all fortunate that we had teachers that themselves were getting to the bottom of things. So hence, we got taught that way. The level of understanding that they had, my teachers insisted that I have it. And I got that young. I remember it was at my second month at CIM, and I was doing some Beethoven symphony. And Mr. Duff stops and goes, ah, what's the second oboe playing there? And I'm like, you know, so I started singing some silliness, and I'm like, oh, whatever. And he goes, ah, you don't know that, do you? Okay, what else you got? And then I thought, wait a minute, did I just lose 30 minutes? And I did. And then I bet you the next week when he asked me, I started seeing everything. He started right. laughing. Right. <laughs> I mean, so <laughs> did. I just started singing stuff. And so yeah. I thought, so what, what did he teach me? Well, you have to know the music like the conductor. That's your job. And then Richard Wiener taught me practical things, like how to negotiate in an ensemble. He says, now, you play with the flutes there. This is what you do. You go walk up to the flute player and you say, I just wanted to see what you're playing that letter B. I'm playing the same thing. I just want to make sure that I'm playing with you. He had that good psychology. So all of a sudden they're listening. And so, so every teacher, I got these practical things of how to live on the stage and how to make it work, you know? And those are the kind of things that we can, all these years of play, we can give to students that will help them in their man, in the band in high school, which will transfer to college, which will transfer to professional. And I'm looking forward to, uh, what students will say that they got from all of us. That, that, that is gonna be very interesting. You know, when a kid makes it, they say, I got this from this, I got this. And, and it's cause we're all gonna give them these things that are helpful. That will be different. That will always be useful. It's like the wheelhouse will be legitimate. You know, you know what I mean? It's like they don't, they have nothing in their toolbox that won't work. It's a, it, we got the same thing, which is, is except everybody will be brown. That concludes our roundtable discussion with five of our ABOP founders, Tim Adams, Douglas Cardwell, Michael Crusoe, Josh Jones, and me, your host, Raynor Carroll. I would like to thank my fellow founders for sharing their stories and for all they do for ABOP. I hope you enjoyed listening and found this discussion both informative and thought-provoking. I assure you there is much more to be said and discussed in the future. Please stay tuned in and follow our podcast. We appreciate your support. We are the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists, ABOP. Thank you for listening.